0: Good to see everyone that braved the wet weather and came back out. We're glad you're here, and I hope you'll want to come back and be with us often. But good to see everybody who's out. Tonight, I'm going to get right into the lesson. Tonight, we're going to address a question. Following some comments that I made, and you can go back and listen to that, if you so desire, on the website. But following some comments I made in answer to a question regarding the Holy Spirit, I was asked this question... Is someone always a Christian even if they're living in sin? So is someone always a Christian? You got a person who's been a Christian, a practicing Christian, now they're living in sin. Would you consider them still a Christian or, and we got into a little bit of a discussion about it, a uh, good, good discussion, but a child of God, a Christian. And so I want to address that. Um, I thought it was a good question. In fact, there were two or three different, um, people who ask something similarly, but I went ahead and went with this particular question the way it was worded. So is someone always a Christian, even if they're living in sin? You know, it might be a matter of semantics, and you can see that I put that on your outline, but I I do want to touch on something before I actually just delve right into the heart of the question. And that is, we use the term, and the term Christian is used, I think, rather loosely, Maybe that's fine, maybe it's not, I'm not sure. But to be sure, if we're talking about someone who is a Christian, you'd find that used only three times in the New Testament. The the disciples, and that's after a hard year of dedicated study under Barnabas and Paul and so forth, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch, Acts 11 and verse 26. When Paul was um, talking with King Herod Agrippa II, and Agrippa, I think, was listening, and answers Paul's teaching by saying, Almost you persuade me to be a Christian. And he uses that terminology. The only other time in the New Testament we see that word Christian, if we were to turn over to 1 Peter 4, starting in about verse 12, and say, Brethren, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to test you or try you. And then it goes on to talk about that dedicated service in which you suffer. Because, and if any man suffers as a Christian. I don't think it's far-fetched to say that the New Testament doesn't use the term as widely as we use it. Um, and And it is interesting that the only three times the term is used, it seems to be used in a context where there is real dedication to being what God wants you to be. Even Agrippa, I think, recognizing that, and I won't get sidetracked on Agrippa, but recognizing that and say, you know, I understand what you're saying about the way and how to live, and you almost persuade me, but, you know, I, I'm not changing my lifestyle, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so you could easily argue, I think, and, and some do, you could easily argue that many people, most people perhaps, don't ever achieve that level of dedication. Even if they obey the gospel, they don't give themselves like that. Certainly not the First Peter 4 description, or even the Acts 11 description. They don't give themselves like that. And even if they do at some point, maybe they obey the gospel, they're very serious, very dedicated. Uh, Jesus in his parable of the sower, I think, demonstrates even two categories of those kind of fall away. Either they're persecuted or their cares of the world or whatever, and they fall away. And so it might be a matter of semantics. And I was discussing at the back of the building after that question and answer period, and a person says, how can you say somebody's a Christian and they're out living in sin? Well, I understand that. And I understand why someone would say that and why someone would, would question. And I said, if you listen to what I said in answer to the question, I never use the term Christian like that. I use the term child of God. Because I do think there's a difference. Maybe I'm pressing a difference, but I think there is one. Because the word Christian means to adhere to Christianity. It literally means one who is, I mean literally, it's a Christ-ite. We might We don't have that term, but that's what it would be. Or even a little Christ, like a little Jesus. In other words, someone who's very dedicated and living it, And I don't throw the word around because I don't think even a whole lot of members of the church are running around in that kind of dedication. So, yeah, I'm not saying Christian, but I am saying child of God, and here's why. So let's talk about an answer to the question, is someone always a Christian? Well, it depends on what you mean by the term. But if you're talking about is someone always a child of God, even if they go off and live in sin, the answer is yes. And so I'm not going to beat around the bush with it. I I said it then that day, and I'll say it now, and here's why. It's because of what a child of God is. It's because of how one becomes a child of God and what the Bible says about that person. And I'll even mention in a moment about the Holy Spirit. You'll understand the tie-in to that question and answer. But a person becomes a child of God. If you'll turn to John 3 with me, this is where Jesus begins to talk about becoming a Christian here with Nicodemus, of course, and he's talking about the idea of being born again. And, of course, we understand that a person is born again when they're born of water and of the Spirit, being baptized. But notice what Jesus said. He answered Nicodemus in verse 3, and I'll jump in the middle of this. I'm sure we're familiar with it. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So that's how you get into the kingdom of God. You have to be born again. The Nicodemus, of course, answers back he doesn't understand. How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Well, of course not. But Jesus answered it back in verse 5 and said, Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, we could show elsewhere what the kingdom is, and that's the church. And we could show elsewhere, like 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 that a person gets into the kingdom of God, he becomes a member of the church by being baptized. Uh, Baptized, of course, in water in obedience to God. But that's what Jesus is talking about here. A man is born of water. Then he goes on to say, verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So marvel not that I said unto you, you must be born again. Now why am I reading a passage about being born again? Because to be a child... To become a child in this world, you know, you have to be born. The only way to live as a human and the only way to live as a spiritual being is to be born. You are born physically, so you're a human being, you're a human child. You are born spiritually, so you are a child of God. And that's the only way to become a child of God. You can see elsewhere, and I won't turn and read it for sake of time, but you can look at John 1, Jesus says the same thing there. Or the teaching is given at least there in verse 13. Of his own will, James 1 and verse 18. Of his own will, speaking of the Father. Of his own will, what saying? of his own will, we are begotten by the word of truth. Or turn with me, if you will, to 1 Peter 1. Again, the language of being born again. So in 1 Peter 1, and go down to verse 22. Seeing you have purified your soul, now obviously, we understand this is when you obey the gospel. But seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit unto, <coughs> that is, into a life of unfeigned, literally, that is, unhypocritical love of the brethren. See that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. Notice verse 23, being born again, not a corruptible seed like human seed that produces a human child. Not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. Obviously, the Word of God, as he says here. So that's how you become a child of God. Now, why am I saying all of that? If you understand how one becomes a child of God, then you would, if you were going to talk about someone who's unfaithful, and I'll state this a couple of times in the lesson, if the only way you can become a child of God is to be born, to be born again, then if you began to live in sin and you stopped Being a child of God. I don't believe that. But if you did. If when you're living in sin. You stop being a child of God. And the only way to be a child of God. Is to be born again. You would have to be born again. Again. And scripture never teaches that. So it teaches a completely different idea. For the child of God. To be reconciled to God. Than it does for the person. Who's never obeyed the gospel. And that's one of the main reasons why I say that. Now, I will mention in passing, going back to the question and answer, the question was asked me about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And if you remember, I I answered from Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 4 that once we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, we continue to be indwelled until the day of redemption. That is until Judgment Day. You can see that in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. And Ephesians 4, verse 30, it should be. So we continue to be indwelled. So what I said was, once you are a child of God, you are always a child of God. And you are always indwelled by the Holy Spirit, at least till Judgment Day, the day of redemption. And it is only then that the Holy Spirit leaves you because you are a child of God. So naturally, that prompted some questions. So are you saying that once a person is saved, once they're a Christian, they're always saved? Because I didn't think you believed that. Well, I don't. Okay, So this has nothing to do with salvation. No, I do not believe that once you're saved, you're always saved. You're always you know, in that state of grace by God, etc., etc. That's not what I'm saying at all. But you remain a child of God. Now, a person might look at that and say, I don't understand that. I don't see how you can say someone's not saved, but they're still a child of God. Well, let's talk about it. Again, as, as I said... The only way to be a child of God is to be born, and Scripture never teaches that you stop being a child. That's number one. And it never teaches, certainly, that if you did stop being a child, how to be a child again. It just never teaches that. So the only conclusion you're left with is, once you're a child of God, you're always a child of God. Well, let's see if Scripture bears that out. First of all, let's let's just consider the idea of once saved, always saved. I don't believe in once saved, always saved. I went to school for several years where I was taught that. And, you know, and I listened to it and I argued it and I looked at the passages and I've looked at them and looked at them and looked at them. The Bible does not teach once you're saved, you're always saved. Nor does it teach. And I think this is a fair place to say this. And you hear me say this from time to time and I'm going to say it again tonight. The Bible does not teach. Once you're baptized, you're always saved. I think there are members of the church that just feel like, and you hear it. You hear people in their language. You hear members of the church, oh, well, he or she was baptized. Or if I could just get them baptized. And I'm always thinking in terms of, well, if you get them baptized, then you need to get them to live a faithful life. Because once baptized does not mean always saved. Baptism is a first step. Baptism is a birth. But it's just like a child, if a child is born today, there's a lot of teaching that's got to go into getting that child to where they need to be. A lot of training, a lot of teaching, somebody's got to do it, and we understand that. same is true of a Christian. So no, no once saved, always saved, and no once baptized, always saved. So what does Scripture teach? Well, you ask the question, can a Christian sin... After they've become a Christian, can a child of God sin and be lost? Scripture shows that. Ed read for us a passage that clearly shows that, and we'll get to that one. But Scripture teaches that. It clearly shows that possibility. And it clearly shows us that, yes, you can be lost. Go with me to 1 Corinthians 9. Let's start there. And I think it bears four or five minutes for us to, and and I'm sure most of you, if not every one of you, agree with me that, no, it's not once saved, always saved but let's make sure we we hear clearly what the Scripture is saying. Because really, what Scripture is teaching us, I mean, what it's telling us, is if it's not once saved, always saved, then you need to heed the warnings about that. Because you can be guilty of being lost uh, once you've obeyed the Gospel. So it's like Paul saying, if we were to turn to 1 Corinthians 9, go down with me to verse 24, for example. Don't you know, That those who run in a race, they all run, but one receives the prize. And so Paul says to these Christians here at Corinth, you run like that. Like what? You run in such a way that you may obtain. What's he saying there? That you can run your race as a Christian in a way as to not win? Now, we know what the prize is. There isn't any question what the prize is. That's heaven. So does that mean that you can run in such a way that you don't get heaven? Even though you are a Christian running the race? The answer is yes. Notice what Paul goes on to say in verse 25. Every man that strives for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now he's using Olympic Games terminology here to a Greek culture, but they understand it. You're going to get out there and you're going to fight. It's just like a boxing match. You're fighting to win. And so he says, if you're going to, you know, and we all understand boxing, I'm sure most of us do anyway. If you're going to be a successful boxer, you don't just go into the ring and win the match. You train and you train and you train and you train, you know, you jump rope and you run miles and you punch bags and you have sparring partners. And so what Paul is saying is every man that strives for the crown, the mastery, is self-controlled in everything. He really applies himself in every facet of life. You know, they eat a certain diet. They train in a certain way. They, do, they have a certain routine, a sleeping regimen. It goes on and on. But they do all of that to win the prize. Now, they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. Notice verse 26. I, therefore, so run. You know, sometimes I think people kind of look at the apostles and think, well, to be an apostle, that just sort of was a guaranteed road to heaven. Where do we see that? Sometimes they sin, they got rebuked for it. Galatians 2 and Peter. Paul makes mistakes and admits it. Paul talks about here, I run in such a way, not as uncertainly. I fight in a certain way. Not, you know, not just haphazardly is the idea. Not as one that beats the air. No, I keep under my body. You know what it literally says there? I beat my body up. And we understand that. Some of you guys train and you do, you know, you're very athletic and you understand exactly what that means. Once I was like that, I understood what that meant. I mean, you beat your body up trying to train for things, to get in shape and all of that language. Paul's using it here spiritually. I beat myself up. I beat my body up and I bring it into subjection lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Could Paul have been lost? Yes. Paul could have gone out and preached the gospel for all those years, dedicated himself, and he understood clearly and by inspiration says right here, I could be lost if I don't really apply myself. If I don't apply myself to be self-controlled in every way, all things. If I don't beat my body up He's not talking about literally taking a whip like some have done and beating on yourself. He's not talking about that. But like you use the language and how hard you work at something and talking about, man, I'm, you know, I beat myself up today and that kind of thing. That's what he's saying. So can you sin in such a fashion as to be lost? Obviously so. Turn a page to chapter 10. Look at verse 12. Wherefore let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. I wonder if you're like I am, you're sitting in this room, and you have found yourself quoting that verse to yourself hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of times. Every time that, and I guess now I'm sort of on automatic pilot after all these years, but every time I start feeling like, wow, I'm really doing good at that. You know, some area of life. Boy, I've got that down. And then I catch myself. And I quote verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 10. Because it's those things when you let down your guard, you figure you've got it whipped. You know, I've got this conquered. That's where Satan gets the road. Satan gets in there and things you would never have believed you could fall into again or do again or whatever. That seems to be the very thing that the faithful Christian ends up slipping up. Take heed lest you fall. We we'll look at a number of passages. I won't turn to Colossians two, but brethren, beware, lest you be overtaken in a philosophy, a vain deceit. I'm going to talk about that in our theme that's coming next year. Won't get off into that, but that'll be a verse in one of the quarters, especially that we'll really talk about this idea of the philosophy and the teaching of the world and the you know things that other people tell us are great, and we buy into it, and before we know it, we're losing our salvation. Or turn with me, if you will, to the book of Hebrews. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 3. Can you sin in such a fashion as a Christian to be lost? Well, yeah, we're warned about that. We're, we're warned it can happen. Look at chapter 3, if you will, and go down to verse 12. There, there's a section here where he quotes from Exodus and what happened to the Jews on, when they came out of slavery. But let's look at a couple of verses. Verse 12. Take heed, brethren. Notice, brethren, these are Christians take heed brethren lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and the idea of departing from the living god i've known people that question that and and actually had discussions with people question that you know if you if you're a christian and you know something you know the truth you believe in god you believe in jesus how could you ever have a heart of unbelief how could it happen that you really, really, really believe, and then you stop believing. How could that happen? And I talk to people about, you know, this may not have happened to you, but I'd be willing to venture that it's happened to somebody you know. And everything is great and they believe and they're strong, and then a series of things start going wrong. And they pray and they're confident. You know, God is going to take care of this. God is going to help me with this. And there will be an answer right around the corner. But it doesn't come around the corner. Maybe you're like Job. Maybe you say not on that scale. It doesn't matter. Whatever scale it is that gets you in the same position. Something happens that you don't understand. And it begins to wear on you. You see, with these people, we give these Jews a hard time who came out of, you know, on the Exodus out of Egypt And we look at those. But remember, God tested them repeatedly. He expected them to pass the test. It wasn't that every 20 feet they went, there was a pool of water, was it? They're out in a desert area and there just wasn't water there. Now, they should have had faith. And they should have believed that a God who could divide a Red Sea, He can provide water. They should have believed that. Just like you ought to believe and I ought to believe that God can take care of me. But when you're in the desert and you're thirsty, it's a different story. And you get the water. And you go a few days or a couple of months later, and it's something else. That's the kind of thing that can wear on you. That's the kind of thing that can beat you down. That's the kind of thing that can get you to stop believing so strongly and start not believing. And that's exactly what he's saying here, so let's read it. He said, take heed, brethren. You beware, you be on guard, because this, this can happen to anybody. Lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. That's why what we were talking about this morning is so important. Encourage one another, exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened. Notice that. Through the deceitfulness of sin. What is he saying there? Well, look at another situation. You sinned. And maybe you sin and it feels bad and you feel bad. I shouldn't have done that. I know better than that. It was wrong to do that. And it feels really bad. And then you do it again. It doesn't feel quite as bad. Oh, it feels bad. I've got to stop this. Man, I can't start doing this. And then you do it again and again and again. Somewhere down the line, 7, 8, 12, 25, whatever number of times it is for you. You do it, and you almost don't even think about it. Oh wow, I forgot to pray and ask for forgiveness for that. That's what he's talking about here. And this isn't just, you know, making a golden calf. This is for anyone who through the deceitfulness of sin, what is the deceitfulness of sin? It is always that it's going to give you what you want. It's going to make you feel good. It's going to give you satisfaction. It's going to bring you to where you need to be. What all of those lies that Satan pumps into taking advantage of sin, that's the point. Notice how the writer goes on here one more time. Look at chapter 4. And I'm skipping a lot of verses here. But now he's talking about that Sabbath of rest. Heaven that awaits the Christian. But he says this. Verse 11 of chapter 4. Let us labor. Work hard, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example as those Jews, is the idea, of unbelief. You know, this wouldn't be written, and we wouldn't be cautioned about it repeatedly if it were not possible. It's very possible. When you look at Hebrews chapter 6, turn a page or so over, and let's go back to that passage. We won't reread it, but let's just notice some things out of it. Why is it impossible to renew one of these who have fallen into sin, fallen away, verse 6. Why is it impossible to renew them to repentance, to bring them back? I want you to look at the list in verses 4 and 5. And when you start talking about things like a person who's enlightened. Now they understand. They know the truth. They get it. You start talking about the idea in verse 4 of one who's tasted the heavenly gift. You know, there are times on this earth as a Christian that things are so good. I mean, you just enjoy the fellowship you have with, with brethren, with family that are Christians. It's just so good and it feels so good. And we say it. Man, this is almost like heaven. Or this is what I imagine heaven to be like. You ever said something like that? You get it. Notice the next thing that he puts in here. They were made partakers of the Holy Spirit. You believe what God says about the Holy Spirit. You know that God loves you and wants you so much, just as he said in Ephesians 1, that he gives you to help you, to make intercession for you, to be with you on a daily basis. A person of the Godhead lives in you. Your body is a temple. Once you understand that, once you really think about who you are and how special you are. But he doesn't stop there. They've tasted the good Word of God. You know when you really taste the good Word of God? It's when you learn it, and you believe it, and you practice it, and you benefit from it. Man, I'm glad I knew that. I'm glad I made that choice. I'm glad God told me that because now I've got this. You've tasted the good word of God. Notice as he goes on here. And the power of the world to come. The idea of heaven and hell being real to you. The idea of salvation, eternity. Sometimes it happens in a reflection in a funeral home. At a funeral Sometimes it happens when a loved one, the generation just before you dies. And now you're the next one up. But you've tasted that. You've felt that. You've known. I mean, you felt close to heaven and hell. Maybe you were in a serious accident that almost took your life. That kind of thing. And he says, if those people fall away, you can't renew those people to repentance. Why? Because what are you going to use? What in the world would you go to that person with? What would you say to them? What would you talk about that wouldn't fall into those categories? What scripture would you read? What eternal thing would you talk about? How good can you talk about it being? How bad can you talk about it being? What would you say to that kind of person? If you go to one of those people, you come to them and you talk to them, and you know what you get? I know that. I know you don't preach to me. I've been there. I know the Bible better than you know it. So, what do you use? There isn't anything to use. If you can have all of that, really have it. Now, if you never learned it, you never felt it, you never were part of it, then hey, we got something to work with. Because you don't know what it means to be a Christian. But if you have and you give it up, it can be for sin. It can be because you went through a lot of things, hard things, and it beats you down. But if you give it up, nobody's getting you back. Now, you'll notice the passage doesn't say necessarily they cannot repent. It says you can't renew them to repentance. Because there just is no bringing someone like that back. Every once in a great while, someone crawls back from that. But not most but they do it themselves. And you won't hear one of those people really saying, oh, so-and-so told me something I never heard before. It just doesn't happen. You don't go to people that have been at it for so many years and so hard and so dedicated and really were what Christians are supposed to be who fall away. So no. Once saved, always saved? No. Scripture teaches explicitly you can be lost. In fact... Let's talk about it from one other passage. Go with me to 2 Peter 2. And in 2 Peter 2, I think you can see it. And this is one of the passages that I use to answer the question. So I want to turn to this. So you're telling me that a person that has been all that you've been describing and then they begin to live in sin, whatever it might be. You know, the the flattering woman out of the book of Proverbs or the drugs or whatever it might be, but goes off into sin. You're telling me that person is still a child of God. And I know that that baffles people. I know that people look at that and say, how can you say that's still a child of God? And from what you believe, Michael, you think the Holy Spirit is indwelling that person and all that sin they're committing. And yeah, grieving the Holy Spirit by it. I want you to look at this passage in 2 Peter 2 because it addresses those people. And you'll know what it calls them. And I'm going to jump in the middle of this. But if you'll go down with me to about verse 014. As he's describing these people. Maybe I should start earlier now, but I'll just jump in right here. But he speaks of people having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin. I want you to notice that phrase. They're in it so hard, so deep, they're never going to stop it. They cannot cease from sin. Beguiling, that is, leading astray, you know, deceiving, unstable souls. A heart they have exercised with covetous practices. Then I want you to notice the last phrase in verse 14. Are they your rank heathen out there that's trying to draw Christians away? No. They are accursed children. These are people that are members of the church that he's describing. And they're members of the church who, for whatever reason, life is so hard... It's not real. God doesn't really love you. He won't really take care of you. And I want to tell as many people the truth as I can. I've known some of those people. Maybe you have too. Or they're people that lived a Christian life and they denied themselves this and they denied themselves that. And a lot of times they felt like they really weren't rewarded for that. And so now they choose to go into sin and sin is pleasurable. And they like it. And so they began to draw other people away, saying, you know, you, you weren't meant to live an unhappy life. You should enjoy yourself. If you want this, go for it, etc., etc. They are accursed children. They're children of God. They're people who were once there. And Scripture really, right in this passage, describes them as such. Let's read it. They are accursed children, verse 14. I know King James says cursed children, but every other one says accursed Verse 15, who have forsaken the right way. We're not talking about people who were never Christians. We're talking about people who were on the right way and left it. Abandoned it. Abandoned it. They've forsaken it. And they are gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Bezor, or Bozor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. And you know, you can love the wages of un... You can love the payment that you get for sin... In many different circumstances. Not just becoming a false teacher. But let's go on. Verse 16. He was rebuked, remember, for his iniquity. The dumb ass, the donkey, speaking with man's voice, forbade the madness of the prophet. But these, as he continues to talk about these Christians here, these children of God. He said, these are wells without water. They are clouds that are carried with a tempest to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. For when they speak these great swelling words of foolishness, and that's the idea, someone comes to you, and I don't know if you've ever known someone like this. I certainly have. I think of friends running through my mind right now. People that once were gospel preachers who are atheists right now. And then if I sat down with them, we know each other so well. Montel knows one of them that I'm certainly thinking about. If we sat down right now, they would begin to tell me what a fool I am. What an idiot I am. What have you gotten out of it, they might say. You know, you've lived your life preaching the gospel. What did you get out of it? They know my life. They know the things that I've gone through, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, so they might begin to say that. Or they might try to talk about all the pleasures of sin, the freedom that you have by leaving this, all this idea of God. And going off into sin. That's exactly who he's talking about. Exactly. Notice as he goes on here. They're wells without water. They are clouds that are carried with a tempest or a storm. When they speak these, verse 18, great swelling words of foolishness, they allure through the lust of the flesh. Through such wantonness, those that were clean escape from them who live in error. In other words, they're alluring people that are still faithful. They're like the devil with Jesus when Jesus was led out into the wilderness, remember? He's hungry, and there are devil's alluring him with food. And he is meant to have a kingdom, and the devil's alluring him with all the kingdoms of the world. You get it. I get it. Notice as it goes on here. They promised them, verse 19, they promised them liberty. They promised them liberty. Isn't that foolish? I'm going to listen to another human being tell me it's okay for me to sin. I mean, who are you? I don't listen to anybody when it comes to the idea of what is sin and what is not, but God. But they're going to promise me freedom, liberty. It's okay. You can do this. Everybody does this. Nobody thinks the way you think. Man, we've heard it all, and you you know, and you're probably sitting there saying, yeah, me too. They promise liberty, and they themselves are the servants of corruption. I look at some of these people, some of these that I'm talking about, once were great friends. Once were people that I sat down to breakfast with, one of these guys that keeps coming in my head right now. I sat down to breakfast with him back in 1980. And we were fresh out of one of the schools that I went to. And we were both gospel preachers. And we sat there and he had this profound moment where he said, Do you realize we are going to be best friends and we are going to preach the gospel and be you know, comrades, co-laborers for the next 40 or 50 years? Can you imagine that? And I did. And then he got married. And it was a bad marriage. And then he committed adultery. And then he left his wife. And then he became an atheist. And now he fights people like me. And I look at his life and I see a servant of corruption. He doesn't obey God. And he argues for the liberty to be free from God. Now where does it get you? If you had remained faithful, if you had fought through the bad times, I understand the bad times. If you had fought through those bad times, we would be co-workers, co-laborers. We would be soldiers together in the army of Christ. And maybe you would not have lost everything you lost. Great swelling words of vanity, promising liberty. But you notice the description. Lest there be any doubt that this can happen to a child of God. If after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that's obviously a child of God. They learned, they obeyed. They are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse than the beginning. For it had been better for them to not have known the way of righteousness, than after they've known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to a true proverb. The dog is turned to its own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. But there be no doubt that once you're saved, you can be lost doesn't mean you're always saved. And once you've been baptized, you can be lost. So it's a lifetime. So you see, as I put on the outline here, to go back to the question. Is someone always a Christian? Well, if you mean that dedicated, hardworking... No, they're not always a Christian, necessarily. And certainly if they're living in sin, they are not. But a child of God, yes. Because what a child of God needs to do, not to be born again... Some people feel, you know, I've lived in so, I mean, the sin is so bad, I've done so much, I need to be baptized again. No, you don't need to be baptized again. If we were to go to Acts chapter 8, Simon was baptized. And then Simon wanted to buy the ability to give the Holy Spirit to people. And that didn't belong to Simon, and so he sinned. And Peter told him, you need to repent. You need to change that. And you need to ask God for forgiveness. You need to confess, according to 1 John 1 and verse 9, if we confess our sins, He, God, the Father, is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what the child of God needs to do. Now, why is it different than the one who needs to be baptized? Because he's a child of God. You know, we don't treat... I mean, people who are our children, we may have high standards for them. But we don't treat them the same. The privileges aren't the same. The things that we do are not the same. We don't just treat them like anybody and everybody out there. There are things that we afford toward them. We give to them. We would not give to just anybody. And it's because they belong to us. That's my child. And we all understand that. Well, we are God's children. And once you are God's child, you have privileges and rights. That the person who's never become a child of God, never been born into the family of God, does not have. Now, they can obey the gospel and be a child. But it's different. And so the Bible teaches us what you need to do if you've never obeyed the gospel. And I'll just say, maybe there is someone here that that is the case. You need to believe in Jesus. As we talked about from Hebrews 6. And you need to confess that belief. And you need to repent to change your life. And you need to be baptized for forgiveness of your sin. But maybe you're a child of God. And you're sitting here and you're listening to this lesson. And you're saying, you know, that's scary. Those passages in Hebrews are scary. That passage in 2 Peter is scary. And it should be. And it's something you should think about. And be serious about. But if you're thinking about it. And I want you to hear this. If it's bothering you. If you're sitting there and you have sin in your life and it's working on your conscience and bothering your heart, you're not in that condition. Where you are is a person that needs to change whatever it is that's wrong. And you need to come to God, confess it, and ask for forgiveness. And I mean confess to God. And you need to have God forgive you of that and go on as His child. And the reason you do that and you have confidence to do that, like we talked about this morning from Hebrews 10, is because you belong to Him. You know what it means to be a child. I hope you do. And I hope you know what it means to have someone you can go to that loves you, maybe loves you more than anybody ever loved you in this world. And you know what it means when you go to them and you want to be forgiven. All they want to do is forgive you because they love you. That's God. And whether we understand that or not, Scripture will teach us that, and we can come to understand that. You're a child of God, and that's what you need to do. Please come while we stand and sing.